As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, we're going to have some fun on the programme today, I think, because James White is back again. Yes, for another week, I'm joined by James, the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries out in uh, Arizona in the States. Uh, he's a long-standing Calvinist author, speaker and debater. Joined me last week to debate open theism and uh, joins me again this week. Uh, he's, uh, he's kindly stayed for a whole week here in the UK <laughs> to, to, just, to, just for my benefit. Um, no, that's uh, we, we, by the wonders of broadcast technology, we, we've managed to... Uh, squeeze things together uh, to bring you James again this week. But uh, what we're doing a bit different. We're, we're doing a, a grill, uh, a grill James White show. <laughs> this we're going to see if we can turn James White a little bit toasty brown today uh, in the course of the program. Um, no, ask- no, when I get you on my program, that's <laughs> when we'll find out. Uh, that, 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 that's, yeah, that's when it, we'll get it'll be a cold day in hell that day. <laughs> um, but uh, James, James White. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Justin. <laughs> At least so. I'm affirming hell for you there, Dave. Um, <laughs> that's right. No, but um, James. James White, uh, you've been on the pro program many times mm-hmm. over the years. Um, I mean, actually, from quite early on in in Unbelievable's history, we've been going ten years now, and you probably came on only a few years into mm-hmm. to that time. Um, you've been over to the UK a number of times to debate Muslims very often. Um, you've recently been in South Africa as well doing that. Mm-hmm. But what we we've got you in today is just to answer a range of questions that because I know that. Um, because we've kind of had you on, people have got to know you on the show. I knew that we'd have some interest in, in some unbelievable listeners getting in touch. I'm sure people who listen to your show as well um, and, and can ask you a few questions. So we've got, we're going to have um, questions from people like David, who's a Unitarian. Did the apostles preach the divinity of Jesus? That's where we'll be starting with David. Uh, Zachary uh, is going to be asking a quite technical question in regards to Calvinist uh, view of things on uh, how to articulate the distinction between primary and secondary causes. Basically, uh, how do we uh, say that God isn't the author of sin on a Calvinist sort of view? 
um, of Scripture. And um, Paul Doze, and I may be mispronouncing it, Paul can tell me when we come to him, uh, he uh, takes an interesting view. He rejects the Protestant Reformation, saying it promotes what he calls progressive justification. We're going to find out what his problem is. Um, and if anyone's able to set him right, uh, hopefully it'll be James. But uh, James comes uh, with his, uh, as it were, your your hat on of, of being a uh, Calvinist, very much in the Reformed tradition. You, um, you you keep using that as the first description. Well, I don't know. It's a it's a handy label, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, um, what would how would you introduce yourself if you were sort of saying this is the position I hold? Uh, well, you know, my my real emphasis is upon the authority of Scripture first mm-hmm. and foremost, and 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 for example, in with a lot of my apologist friends, we have differences as to the priority of philosophy versus exegesis. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's vitally important. For example, I, I think one of the great tragedies is that most of my apologist friends uh, don't know the biblical languages. It's not, it's not an emphasis amongst many of them. And I think that's—I've taught Greek and Hebrew. I, I think right. that's extremely important. Mm. I, think, I think one of the key apologetic issues today is the reliability of the text in the New Testament. Bart mm. Ehrman's attack upon the, the transmission of the text. Actually, he's attacked every single stage now. It's, it's mm. a purposeful thing on his part. Uh, but he started off with what? Misquoting Jesus. We can't know what was originally written by Paul or anybody else. Uh, he's laying a, a, a groundwork for unbelief. I think that is uh, one of the most important issues today, and I don't think that we can leave that to specialists. And, and in a sense, for you, that's more important than these philosophical debates about whether you can, uh, God can be proven from <clears throat> yes. the you know the physics of the universe or well i think those things are wonderful i think they're they have their place uh but as as a reformed theologian uh i also believe that men know that god exists and they're suppressing that knowledge now that takes mm. many different forms but i think it's very important to recognize that if you have someone who's holding down what they already know about god and you give them more information what are they going to do with it they're just going to suppress that as well i see my job as coming along and prying those fingers up so that the the message of the gospel can can have an uh, I'd, I I want to make sure that the unbeliever does not think I'm saying to him you get to judge God because mm. I don't believe that that's a biblical presentation we are going to be judged by God there's going to be a day when the son of God's going to speak and we're all going to rise from the dead and there's going to be judgment and that's the apostolic teaching on the other hand you've mentioned Bart Ehrman and you are happy to debate people like Ehrman you've done you've done, done a debate with him and other people who are skeptical of the New Testament reliability on that level you're willing to do a debate on whether we judge scripture mm-hmm. to be reliable or not so well, so so you are really in, in that sense to but I'm not saying to him that he has the right to determine whether God can speak I mean mm. you, you know Bart uh, he's starting to change a little bit but for a long time he really tried to avoid engaging in any theological uh, he'd make theological statements but he would mm. not want to defend those theological statements he's starting to change that now with some of what he's doing but um, really I see a category difference between debating someone who's saying we don't know that the New Testament has been transmitted to us correctly and saying to the unbeliever you get to judge whether God exists or not mm. uh, because biblically speaking we're made in the image of God and for me the point of contact between me and anybody is not the myth of some type of moral or intellectual neutrality. I do not believe there is any neutral ground in this universe. Why? Because I believe Jesus Christ created all things. And if he created all things, then every fact that exists is a fact because Jesus made it to be that way. Now, that's a radical claim. I realize mm-hmm. it's a radical mm-hmm. claim. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the, to the wise of the world, that is moria, from which we get moron. Okay? <laughs> it is foolishness. foolishness. It is the, utter, mm. the lowest level of foolishness. Uh, and the gospel will always be foolishness. 
Um, and, and the church never shows itself more foolish that when it tries to de-foolish right. the, the gospel. Because what, is, what does Paul say there? In the wisdom of God, man by his wisdom does not come to know God, but it's by mm. the foolishness of what is preached. And so I think that's an important aspect that, to be honest with you, I'm very concerned that in a lot of Christian academia, we lose sight of that. Mm. Have you ever noticed that Christian seminaries almost never become more conservative? They almost all become more liberal over time. Right. And I think part of that is we become enamored with the wisdom of the world. We want acceptance from the world. I'm not saying that we as Christians should do worse scholarship in the world. We should do better mm, scholarship mm. in the world. But the foundation point, where we begin, I as a Christian scholar, I am not ever going to say to the word, world, I don't begin by bowing the knee to Jesus Christ. If if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, then we ha- everybody starts someplace. Mm. I, I mean, coming back to this, this airman, so we obviously, as you know, had Bart Ehrman and Richard Borkham debating for and a couple guess, of years. guess shows. how I listen to those programs? On my podcast, I'm sure. On, on the back of a bike. Where okay, else? <laughs> yes, where else? You, you, you're a keen cyclist, and you, 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 I'm sure you put them on double speed or something I as did, well. I did, and listen to them twice that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard you on The Dividing Line mm-hmm. a week or so later kind of talking about the show and critiquing it and saying you felt the first one in which they were debating um, whether the Gospels are the product of eyewitness testimony. You felt fairly even-handed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Richard Borkham did, did okay on that. Then you felt it fell apart a bit in the second one, you said, mm-hmm. and that was where they debated whether we can trust psychologically eyewitness testimony and so on. That was the main thrust of that was the main thrust, being, right. being said. And, um, and particularly, um, you, you felt that Bart kind of won the day, I think, mm-hmm. uh, on that one. And and the point you made was um, about submitted scholarship. Yes. <clears throat> you said so. Just explain what that is and why why you think this is important. I have I have a serious concern uh, that uh, you know Richard Balcom is a tremendous scholar, but to get ahead, especially in Europe, but it's happening in the United States now as well, pretty much all across academia, uh, to be considered you know in the elite uh, core, there are are certain concepts. Uh, that have to be accepted. And I'm very concerned that Christian scholars give in to the idea that we that there's such thing as the myth of neutrality. Like I was just saying, I do not believe there, there can be. Um, I, I believe that when we try to pretend that there is... Uh, well, well, Ehrman demands this. You've heard him say this so many times. Mike Lycona and other people, if you're going to be a real critical scholar, then God can never be a part of history. So in other words, what's the, mm. what, what is the, what's the result of that? Mm. What is the fundamental as, what, aspect of Christian teaching that separates us from, from pagans? When you look at the New Testament, everything that happened in Jesus' life happened in history. He was born in a particular place. Mm. He was born at a particular mm. time. The pagan religions, it just sort of, it didn't matter what time because yeah. it, was all, it was all just a story. Our faith is grounded in history, and our faith is grounded in the fact that God has been active in history. And so we cannot engage in a naturalistic historiography. And so I believe that we have to be open in saying, I begin by bowing my knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who made me and gave me everything that I am. He is the center point. Mm. And this, the world's going to laugh but the world has got its center point too. It just doesn't want to acknowledge it. So, in your view, then, should Christian biblical scholars be starting from the point of view that, well, the belief is that these scriptures are God-inspired, God-breathed. Therefore, we begin from the assumption that they're trustworthy, and and we're going to always be arguing in that direction because that's our foundation. Whereas Bart is saying, no, you you've got to you've got to get rid of those assumptions and and just stand on my ground, which is. 
which is a le- which is not neutral. That's the point. See, both both sides. There there is there there can be no point of neutrality. Bart may pretend to be neutral, but he's not. And so when we try to pretend to be neutral, we end up neutering ourselves in reality because we end up playing with their foundation and I cannot build my building upon their foundation. You've heard me before. I've, I've often criticized the, uh, well, I, I criticize the, the minimal facts uh, yeah, approach you do. Mm. Um, because I don't believe that, that you can start with the Gospels as merely semi-accurate historical records and on that foundation build where you want to take a person in regards to the I guess, I guess, the I guess the approach though for people like Bill Craig, Mike Lacona and others mm-hmm. who use the minimal facts approach to the resurrection is that um, you're, you're kind of, you're trying to reach a skeptic who does not share your belief in the inerrancy or inspiration of scripture. So you're, you, you kind of go to the ground of saying, okay, well, what do we all agree in the secular world about the, the histor- historical facts and as it happens just that will get you to the best evidence you can get for the re- you know the best explanation of that is still the resurrection therefore you should now consider whether this document and this person are are worth thinking about and believing in so i i don't i, I maybe disagree with you there if yeah, i dare I, I, say james well, I, understand, that, that I think there is a value to this because even though you you're, you're kind of obviously you have to do something that maybe meets someone where they're at and that's where we disagree because the starting point of where they're at, you see, from my perspective, a biblical anthropology is where they're at is they already know that God, you know, Saiten Brugenkate, okay? Uh, <laughs> they know that God exists. They're suppressing that knowledge. And if we, if we listen carefully to, I think Romans 1 is one of the most important, not only theological, but apologetic texts in all of Scripture. Because if you listen to what it says about the result of sin in the thinking process of man, and by the way, that's the context of the whole discussion, Romans 1, 26 and 27, homosexuality, so that, that has to be addressed as well. But if you begin with that, what you just said presents a view of man uh, as a skeptic, but he is a skeptic that would be willing to examine things, and you're in essence saying to him, you get to examine this stuff and judge God, rather than saying, you're the creation of God, and that's the connecting point. That's that's the that's yeah. The... I, I I get what you're saying. I'm, the only thing that that then strikes me is you do have debates with people like Bar M and others in which you are tussling over the historical reliability of scriptures and, and making these cases from history. So so. But when I debate an atheist, like when I debated Dan Barker, the head of Freedom mm. from Religion Foundation, in the United States, if you watch the debate we did on the existence of God at the University of Indiana, I made it an explicit element of my presentation that I am not inviting Dan Barker or the audience to judge the existence of God. Okay. I made it very, very clear. Mm. So even when I present, for example, I think intelligent design is incredible. Mm. I was a biology major in college, mm. and, and I think the evidence from that is, is overwhelming, but it's only overwhelming within a worldview that allows for it to be rational sure. and yeah. to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I am consistent when I'm dealing with someone like that and making sure that I'm not to, to be understood as saying, I'm granting to you 
the right to judge the existence of yeah. God. I, I'm very clear on that. Well, we've had a really interesting debate already between us, James, that we, we should include <laughs> well, some like other I said, people. Like I said, anytime you want to go out and come on the debate. next line, in we'll... Phoenix. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Um, we're going to take some calls in the course of today's program. Uh, James White with me. And uh, if uh, you want to maybe reflect on anything that's said in the course of the program, we, of course, invite your emails to unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Do find us online as well at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. You can find links there to the Unbelievable Facebook and Twitter accounts at unbelievablejb, facebook.com slash unbelievablejb. You're, you're waving your finger and at me, And I will be listening to the <laughs> programs after these air to hear all the interesting uh, responses too, I assure you. Yes, you can guarantee that. And he'll talk about it too. Um, so um, so uh, we're going to take some calls uh, in the rest of today's program. So uh, we're looking forward to this as we grill James White. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well, first uh, person on the line uh, is David Kemble Cook. Now, David actually got in touch a few weeks ago after I had Jonathan McClatchy, young Christian apologist on the program, debating, first of all, a Jewish person and then a Muslim on the, the resurrection and uh, the, uh, the, the, the stories of the apostles after the resurrection and so on. Um, and David got in touch saying he disagreed with Jonathan. Um, he didn't believe that the apostles preached the divinity of Jesus. David uh, is a Unitarian himself, doesn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, and so, um, David, um, do you want to just um, set out what your main problem is when it comes to the apostles, the divinity of Jesus, and, and why you don't think they preached or taught that in the book of Acts? Yeah, hi, hi Justin. Yeah, um, as a, we, we, I would say a biblical Unitarian, um, mm-hmm. to distinguish us from the kind of outer fringes of the reference of that word, um, I, we we do not believe that the apostles actually believed that Jesus was God. Was God. And, and um, I would say that we are, we are consistent Protestants. We're more consistent Protestants than the evangelicals and the Reformed people because we put more trust in the Bible than what the 4th and 5th century bishops decided, uh, the creeds and so on. Mm. And, and so, you know, we, we think, certainly I do, that authentic Christianity is what the apostles believed and if we want to know what they believed, we look at what they preached and what they taught. We don't go to what we could infer from the rest of the Bible using whatever spectacles we choose to put on. But, you know, we, we look at what they actually said, what they preached and what they taught. And I've got four questions for Dr. Wise. Whether we get to all of them remains to be seen, David, but, we'll, but give us your first at the very least. And we'll, OK, we'll right. Hi, Dr. Wise. Thanks for agreeing to answer questions. Yes, um, firstly, the Apostles preached that Jesus was God's Messiah, Son of God, which is a messianic title, Saviour and Lord, if they had believed that Jesus was actually God as well, they would surely have proclaimed it as part of their preaching of the Gospel. From your point of view, not only is the deity of Christ the central doctrine of Christianity, but also it's certainly commonly said we have to believe that Jesus is God to be saved. So surely, from your point of view, the deity of Christ had to be in the preaching and in all of it as well. But then can you explain why the deity of Christ is not mentioned in any of the recorded preachings of the Gospel in Acts? Not even in one. 
Uh, sure. I have to disagree with a, a number of portions of the question. First of all, you identified Son of God as merely a messianic title. Clearly it is not. In John chapter 19, for example, uh, it is uh, said, the Jews said, uh, that we have a law and by a law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 61, when uh, the high priest abjures him, uh, you know, are you the Son of the Most Blessed One? Jesus says, I am. And then he conflates Psalm 110.1 with uh, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, both a text that cl- clearly referred to a uh, a divine uh, being in in their particular uh, context, and and the Jews' response was, "Tear tear the robes! What further need is there of evidence? You've heard the blasphemy, so on and so forth." So I don't believe that Son of God uh, is merely a messianic title at all. And so when you look at the utilization of the term kurios of Jesus, and the fact that the apostles are willing. Uh, in and if you'll allow the book of Hebrews to also be an example, a very early example, pre-70 example of preaching. Uh, and in fact, my theory is that uh, the book of Hebrews was a, a sermon of the Apostle Paul written by Luke. I don't know if you ever <laughs> heard that, that particular written down by Luke because the style is Lucan. Yeah. But the theology is Pauline. Yeah, that's, so, that's an interesting theory, actually. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not the only one that's come up okay. with that, but a, a number. But, but it's clearly to me it's pre-70 because mm-hmm. it assumes that the sacrifice is still taking place in the temple. May I come back then on that? Oh, um, let me let me just let me just finish the point in in the book of Hebrews very plainly. Uh, right at the start, you have the identification of Jesus as not only Creator, but as Yahweh, identified as God, and then. The unchangeable God in the citation of Psalm 102, 25 through 27 in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And so if you have that early level of proclamation, which is also reflected in the Carmen Christi and the hymn to Christ's God in, in Philippians 2, which would have been a part of the proclamation of the church and the preaching of the church and the singing of the church, uh, then you do have very clearly these very strong evidences in the most primitive uh, uh, level of the New Testament tradition. David? Okay, thanks. Right. Well, I have to disagree you on disagree with you on everything, but of course I didn't want to go to Hebrews. I wanted to stay with Acts. But Son of God is messianic explicitly in eight places in in the in the Gospels, including three times in John, and once in in twenty thirty one, which is John's conclusion that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Which was my fourth question, really, is how you explain that is the conclusion of his cumulative case. But back to Acts, um, we're not talking about Hebrews, we're talking about what the apostles preached, actually. Uh, you said Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus is God, I think you're saying, but then you ignore Acts 2.36, which explicitly says that Jesus, that, that Jesus' Lordship is a title given to him by God. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Lord... Uh, lordship is a, type, is, is a title given to Jesus by God, nothing to do with actu- him actually being God. So, well, you'll notice what you're doing is you're, you're cutting the New Testament up, because if you allow the book of Hebrews to be concurrent with the preaching of the book of Acts, uh, then you'd have to allow everything the New Testament says. Now, I've never made the argument that the deity of Christ uh, is sustainable uh, when someone cuts the New Testament up into parts and uh, says, well, I'm only going to go with this, or I'm not going to interpret this in light of that, it is indeed a cumulative case uh, when you look at all that the New Testament teaches that it is simply inconceivable that the descriptions made of Jesus Christ, uh, the fact that he is said to be the creator of all things, the fact that he's identified uh, with, with uh, Yahweh in John chapter 12 or Hebrews chapter 1, 
if those same apostles were the ones preaching, then that gives you the matrix, the, the milieu, the context into which you are to be looking at the relatively few sermons uh, that are contained in the book of Acts or looking at the materials that are found, the epistles uh, that would touch upon these issues. So it's, it's, an, it's an interpretive hermeneutic issue uh, that is very important at this point. Oh, absolutely. That's right. And that's what I tried to say at the beginning. So thank you. It's really that if we want to know what the apostles believed, we look at what they preached and what they taught. We don't look at what we can infer from the Bible as a whole. And, and you're right, it is a hermeneutic issue. Back to Acts, which is my question. If we read the sermons in Acts, they don't say that Jesus is God. Paul, to the Jews in Acts 17, verse 3, he preached that Jesus is Christ. To the Gentiles, later in the same chapter, he doesn't even say that he's Christ, he just says he is a man whom God hath ordained. If we read Acts, we do not see Jesus' deity preached. That was my question. And I don't think you've given an answer to it. Well, um, I, I, think you've, I think you've got a, a biased ear, though, if, if I might just point it out, because uh, you just said, well, uh, it says that he's a, he's a man from God. Well, I just did a debate with some Muslims at the University of Johannesburg, and, and this is a very, very common Muslim statement. Well, he's, he's not God. He's a man. Well, the, the biblical teaching is that he's truly a man. Biblical teaching is that he is uh, Christ, he is Messiah, uh, he is king, he is priest, um, he is son of man in Daniel 7 context, he's son of God, uh, which brings uh, accusations of uh, blasphemy. Um, and you're trying to isolate each one of those and saying, well, you know, son of God, if it's used with Christ, then it's somehow lower uh, than what brought about the accusation of the Jews uh, when they heard Jesus saying, uh, my father's working until now, and I am working as well, they recognized he was claiming the very same prerogative as, as his father. And so, again, if you allow all of, of, of Scripture to speak, uh, it's very clear what's being said in these texts, but you're, you're chopping them up and saying, well, it's either or rather than all of these texts being no, taken I, together. I just wanted to know about what the apostles preached in Acts. Are you saying that the converts in Acts understood the apostles to be preaching that Jesus was God? What did they understand when they heard the preaching? Well, uh, obviously, if, the, if Philippians chapter 2 uh, does represent, in fact, one of the most primitive uh, elements of Christian worship and belief, if that was the singing of the early church, uh, in my church, the singing and the preaching go hand in hand. They reflect the same belief. And so if the, if the people of God uh, were singing that Jesus had eternally existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with the Father, something to be held on to, but he, he uh, made himself of no reputation. He's now been exalted at the right hand of the Father, described as Jehovah. Every knee bows to him, even though knees only bow to Jehovah, etc., etc. Um, then that obviously must have been the content of the preaching. Please realize something. The preaching in the book of Acts is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. You could read every sermon in the book of Acts in, in about 20 minutes. And so uh, it, it just is not a proper hermeneutical form to ignore the epistolary literature and the specific teaching of books like Hebrews and things like that, because that's what provides the context to understand what the primitive Christian belief was all about. Well, thanks. Yeah. But every time I ask you about Acts, you go off somewhere else. <laughs> that's, because all... I, that's because I will not be artificially limited. Uh, I mean, that's like, that's like saying, well, um, if the deity of Christ is true, then it must be found in Third John. 
That's, that's an artificial limitation. What I'm saying is the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, their understanding of what kurios means, their, their idea of the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies, uh, their utilization of all those things cannot be separated from the context that makes them meaningful. And that is found in the very letters that those same apostles then sent to the same churches where they had preached the, the few sermons. You've, you've got, you're, you're cutting out artificially uh, the the actual basis of Christian belief, and that is the harmony of the divine revelation that has been given to us. Well, I'm sorry, I'm asking about the Acts, of what's said in Acts. And what about the poor Ethiopian eunuch? And he goes back to Ethiopia, and he only believes that Jesus is the Son of God and not God. Um, and of course, I, d- I disagree with you that that's merely a messianic statement, but do, why do you think that the Ethiopian eunuch, all he ever heard from Philip, could be could be summarized in approximately 45 seconds. All right, so what you're saying then is that the apostles did actually preach that Jesus is God explicitly, but this is not recorded in Acts. Is that your position? That Acts is... Well, first of all, we disagree that there are not references to the deity of Christ because of the term Son of God, kurios, and things like that in the book of Acts. But what I'm saying is that when we look at the people who heard those sermons and we look at what the apostles wrote to them, there you have the evidence we're, right we're going to have to wrap it up here so david thank you very much for being our first caller in this grill <laughs> james white session um we're going to go to a quick break and uh, we'll be able to pull in a, another couple of callers um who've got their own questions for james this afternoon uh, do get in touch if you'd like to as well give your thoughts unbelievable at premier.org.uk the show which gets christians and christians thinking uh, we're going to have a bit of a theological discussion during the rest of today's program so stick with us if you can here on premier christian radio before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast i've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this easter As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's Unbelievable special program where my guest James White, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, takes a variety of calls from Unbelievable listeners. We heard from David in the first half and we're going to be hearing in this section from Zach and Paul different questions on uh, the Reformation, on uh, Calvinist theology and other things. Um, James White, well known as, I hesitate to call you a Calvinist now since you (laughs) ticked me off for for introducing you in that way, James. Uh, uh, 
what, what was it you forgot <laughs> to call yourself again? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an elder in Reformed Baptist Church. I guess you could call me yeah. a Reformed apologist, something like that. It's just, you wear many hats. Yes. Um, but um, it's, it's lovely to have you and, and have the chance just to talk through some of your theology with the help of some of these listeners. Um, so we're going to go to, to Zach in a moment's time. If you're interested in getting in touch yourself, uh, again, unbelievable at premier.org.uk for the email address. You can find links to James, uh, to other shows he's been on, of course, from the Unbelievable Archives at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Um, later on today on Premier, uh, you can hear uh, between four and five, The Profile, another high-profile Christian, talks about their life, faith, uh, and witness and their journey. Uh, we can hear some of your calls as well, some of your responses at least, towards the end of today's show to last week's programme as well, uh, when James was with me, with me debating open theism. But um, for the moment, um, let's uh, m- press on and let's uh, let's hear some more of your calls uh, as they come in. Uh, Zach, Zach is on the line. Um, Zach, great to have you on the programme today. Thanks for having me, Justin, and hello, Dr. White. Hello. Um, Zach, uh, you've got um, what on the face of it looks like quite a technical question here. Um, and, um, and I'll just sort of read out what you sent me in advance of the program. How should we articulate the distinction between primary and secondary causes when speaking of God's decree in regards to the fall of man? I'm asking this because I believe God is sovereign over all things. And yet I know he's not the author of sin. I stumble when trying to explain this to others. So, so you, 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 you are uh, sympathetic. I think you're a fan, actually, of, of James's position, Zach. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I also hold to the reform view. So, yeah. Um, but, but there's a kind of technical issue here of, of, okay, if God is responsible, sovereign for everything, um, does that kind of make God the author of sin? Um, and, and so, do you want to just talk us through that a little bit? Sure. Um, I, I believe he is not the author of sin, um, obviously, um, but at the same time, I, I see that there's a tension there between knowing that he has a decree, he decrees whatsoever comes to pass, you know, including the fall. Um, I don't believe the cross was a contingency plan or anything like that. Um, so at the same time, how do we affirm that sin was a part of his decree, you know, in the Garden of Eden, um, without making him the author of sin? Right. How do we hold those in tension? Well, you're, you're not to know this, but we, we tackled some of these issues uh, uh, in, an, in a debate on open theism uh, in most recently oh. with James. But um, the, uh, th- this, this certainly ties into that, uh, doesn't it, James? So, so it how, how do you uh, untangle this knot? Yeah, uh, a couple things. Uh, about four years ago, I had a young man write to me who was struggling with uh, maintaining his Christian profession on this, on this particular issue. And uh, I hope you don't mind my re- referring someone to the fact that I, I did probably uh, four hours uh, responding to his questions uh, on the program, uh, knowing that it was it was a very important pastoral issue. You're talking mm-hmm. about someone mm-hmm. whose whose faith is 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 in the balance is the balance at that yeah. point. So uh, obviously we only have a few moments here. I go into far mm-hmm. more detail mm-hmm. in, the, in that context. But and then secondly, uh, from my perspective, Zach, and this is where I this is where some people like me and other people don't like me. Um, but I believe that first and foremost, um, that the, the, the believing heart will find the greatest uh, solace and consolation and encouragement and uh, peace if you're convinced that you, are, you know what the Word of God says about this subject. Uh, you know, if, if, if there's all sorts of arguments that could be put out there, but in my experience, 
the people who have a faith that is an abiding faith, it's a persevering faith, it's because it is firmly rooted in the fact that God has spoken. And basically, you know, as I say to Christians, we need to have Jesus' view of Scripture. And I can't imagine a higher view of Scripture. Um, you know, right. I, I think of what Jesus said to the, the Jews in Matthew chapter 22, when he said, have you not read what God spoke to you, saying, and then he quotes from the, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, normally, have you not read what someone wrote to you, or have you not read what's, listened to what someone mm. spoke to you? Mm. Jesus changed that so that his view of, of God speaking, it's the exact same thing that Paul had and the exact same thing that Peter did. So I'd, I, I, that's, that's why I answer this question not by immediate response to some kind of philosophical theodicy, um, but to the fact that I think we have to start with some biblical foundations. Biblical foundation A, I don't think there's any question. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Um, even Nebuchadnezzar, the ancient uh, king in, in Daniel chapter 4, knows one absolutely firm thing. Um, God acts, and no one can change uh, when, when he acts. He has a sovereign decree, and he is accomplishing that right. decree. And so we have to start there. I believe we have to start with God, if we start with man and try to determine his creator based upon man's perceptions or man himself, we're always going to have a distorted view. And I think a lot of theologies do that, to be perfectly honest with you. But there are three texts that I always direct people to, and I'll be very, very brief. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph, uh, uh, their fathers died, brothers come to Joseph, and they're afraid that Joseph's now going to wreak havoc upon them because the father's no longer there to protect them. And remember what Joseph, the collected wisdom of a life of suffering, comes out in Joseph's words, I know that you meant this for evil, what they did to him, which was an evil thing. Think about what they did. Mm -hmm. Think about the hardness of heart when their father is weeping and they are silent knowing that mm -hmm. Joseph is still alive. The hardness of heart there right. is an amazing thing. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good and to save many people alive today. The Hebrew is absolutely parallel in the use of the term to intend. So you have one action. The intention of Joseph's brothers is evil. It's sin. He, makes, he does not make excuses for it. He does not say, oh, don't worry about it because God intended these things. No, it's evil. You intend it for evil, but God intended the exact same event for good. And so Joseph had come to understand that. And I think it's vitally important that we understand it as well, because without that understanding, then Isaiah chapter 10 makes no sense at all. In Isaiah chapter 10, God brings Assyria against, against uh, the, the, his covenant people to, to judge them, uh, to trample them under feet in the streets. I mean, we're talking destruction and everything else here. And yet then the scripture says, but this is not what the king of Assyria intends. And then once they're done being my instrument against Israel, I'm going to judge them because of the attitude of the heart of the, of the king of the Assyrians who says, I'm going to do these things and I'm, he does not acknowledge God. And so God uses Assyria. They do evil things and then God judges them based upon what? His sovereign decree that they can't know? No, we're always judged solely upon God's revealed will and the revealed will of God is you don't behave the way the Assyrians did. And so he judges them on the intentions of their heart, not on his divine decree. And then the third and last one, of course, the prayer of the early church in Acts chapter 4, uh, where they are persecuted and they come together and they talk about Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans. And it specifically said, they did whatever your hand and your will predestined to take place. All these different decisions by these different people 
all these different desires. And yet they did what God's will predestined them to do. Now, was Pilate guilty for what he did? Of course he was. Were, were, were Joseph's brothers guilty for what they did? Of course. Was the king of Assyria guilty for what he did? Of course. So what is the basis of judgment? The basis of judgment is not some concept of libertarian freedom where uh, they could have done other. The issue was that they followed the desires of their hearts, and God used that. Now, the big question is, yeah, but but what comes first, the chicken or the egg type of a situation? How, how can God have a decree that includes evil? Well, the one thing, the, the real issue here only comes down to Adam. It really doesn't come down to us because we are fallen, and as it is, the Bible says God restrains our evil. So if he has to restrain our evil, then obviously, you know, once, once we're in the fallen state, this isn't all that difficult an issue to, to deal with. But the question has to do with Adam. And um, there was a really, really brilliant guy that thought he had figured this out. Not sure if you ever heard a discussion of this in all the many programs you've done, Justin. But um, Jonathan Edwards tried mm-hmm. to figure out the relationship of the sovereign decree of God and the will of the unfallen Adam. Okay. Now remember, how much divine revelation do we have on the nature of the unfallen will of Adam? Almost nothing. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. just isn't almost <laughs> anything there, yeah. right? Okay. And, the, and even, even John Gerstner, who was a huge fan of Jonathan Edwards, said, here we see the great mind of, of Edwards trapped in a morass and quicksand of self-contradiction <laughs> because, um, look, uh, here was the difference between Edwards and, and Calvin, both huge minds, but Edwards was willing to speculate on matters outside of divine revelation. And one of the specific mottos of Calvin mm-hmm. was when God makes an end of speaking, so must we. And so if God has not given us the divine revelation to even know the, the, the nature of Adam's will, uh, to try to speculate beyond that will always end up getting us into a world of hurt. And yet many people do exactly that. And this is where epistemological humility comes in. But this is revelatory okay. humility. Okay. Anything you want to add, Zach? Because, you know, um, I'm aware of time and, and I want to make sure that you feel we've gotten to the, the heart of your issue. Yeah, no, um, I, I think you definitely did. I appreciate the scriptural response, um, definitely. But uh, the the issue, I guess, that I run into when trying to articulate it to other people is, well, then automatically, which I'm assuming stems from, like, a man-centered view, you know, a different starting point. Instead of starting with God, they're starting with man, you know. And so they automatically jump to, okay, well, then, then God's the author of sin, right. you know. And so well, I guess... Well, let's let's define what author of sin. Let's 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 define what author of sin means. When when um, when reformed writers say God is not the author of sin, they are talking about the idea that God brings sin into existence as an expression of His own desire, an expression of His own nature, uh, on a whim, uh, as as in contradictory to His own holy nature. If we did not have a divine decree, if we did not believe that from the beginning it was God's intention for the incarnation and the, the, the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then we wouldn't really have any basis for, be, for, for discussing this, to be perfectly honest with you. Because right. the, the, the point is uh, that when we talk about how God deals with evil, um, his decree, which includes evil, only views it not as an expression of his person, uh, but as an, an element 
of the demonstration of his grace and his mercy. In other words, God has chosen to reveal all of his attributes, not just holiness, not just wrath, um, not just vengeance, and so on and so forth, but also love, mercy, so on and so forth. The only way to do that um, is to for him to have freedom. This gets into the issue of the mm. nature of the elect and, and, and then how he redeems that people in Jesus Christ. And so when, when someone says author of evil, you need to understand they're normally talking about bringing it directly into existence out of a desire uh, or out of an act. God has okay. never forced anyone to do an evil act. He has always restrained evil, but he has never. You've never had. There's no such. There's no such thing as an individual who wanted to do what was good, and God said, "I'm not going to allow you to do that. I'm going to force you to sin instead." That's not something that is a part of His decree. We're going to have to leave it there, right. Zach. I appreciate uh, we we could have gone for four hours on it. I think but, so. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, great. No, that, that, great that to have you sense. call in. Thank thank you very okay, much for you. being part of the show today. All, all the very okay, best. Dr. White. Thanks. Yeah. God bless. Take care. Thanks, Justin. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. So let's take another caller. And uh, today on the program, we're, we're getting James White to respond to a few calls uh, coming in. James, again, Director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, if people want to find your website, James, where should they go? AOMIN.org. AOMIN.org. And they can find links there to, of course, your podcast, uh, The Dividing Line. YouTube, and so on. debates, so on and so forth. Um, so uh, uh, do, do get in touch as well if you, if you want to uh, list, um, talk about what happened on today's program. But um, I've saved our sort of our wild card till last James, uh, Paul Dosey is on the line. Um, I don't know Paul, uh, you don't either, and we neither of us have really heard of, of his main issue with uh, Calvinism, with um, the, Re- the Protestant Reformation. He says, though, it promotes something called progressive justification. We're hopefully going to find out what that is. Um, Paul's on the line now and uh, and has a number of questions that he wants you to answer, James. So we'll see see where we get to in the last 10 minutes that we've got with, with James here, Paul. Um, welcome onto the programme. What did you want to ask James, Paul? I would just like um, seven yes or no answers to seven questions, and I understand that there could be more discussion on these questions, but I just want a you, yes you or no You just want a yes or no. Can I do right. say, then, James, will, I'm sure, try his best, but he may want to clarify your questions, obviously, when you ask them, but, but go, okay. ahead, go ahead. Okay. Number one, did John Calvin hold to progressive justification? You have to define what you think that means, sir. I, I've, it's a very strange uh, terminology. What, what do you think progressive justification means? Well, uh, what it means is that justification isn't a finished work in the life of the believer, justification or salvation progresses to a from a beginning point to an ending point. Okay, then the answer to your question is uh, he most assuredly believed that justification is a forensic declaration by God that takes place and is a past event and he differentiated between justification, sanctification and the entirety of salvation. So uh, to to meaningfully answer the question uh, you'd have to utilize his categories, and he did not believe in progressive justification. 
He believed in both positional and progressive sanctification uh, and would differentiate between justification, sanctification, and salvation. Okay, so what you're telling me, and we must move on quickly to the second one, but when what you're telling me is that as a Calvinist, the term progressive justification is a little bit peculiar in your mind or strange. Well, it, it goes directly against the Reformation teaching of what justification was, because the argument with Rome was that justification involved an infusion of the righteousness of God through the sacraments. The Reformers taught that justification was a, a forensic declaration on the part of God based upon the work of Jesus Christ that says that you are right before God. And they talked about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the imputation of our sins to Jesus Christ, right. our sin-bearer. Okay, so you're saying that the righteousness of the believer is strictly positional, but not a state of being. A state of being in the sense of, of uh, being the basis of justification? Uh, most definitely. No, I'm not talking about the basis of justification at all. I'm talking about the substantive thing of the individual believer. Is he righteous or not righteous? Well, uh, th and that's exactly where you do get into the differentiation between the concept of sanctification and justification. Justification is okay. a... So I think that the rest of the questions might help us to clarify, but we only have ten minutes, so I must move on. Okay, go ahead. Um, Question two. In, in one of three classes of election, the non-elect, the called, and those who persevere, did Calvin teach that the called classification are temporarily elected slash illuminated and then fall away to a greater damnation as predetermined by God? He, be he believed that there were certain people uh, who received enlightenment specifically to increase their damnation, yes, but he would not say that they were a part of the elect from eternity. Thank you. Question number three. According to Calvin, does the present sin of the believers move them from, uh, remove them from grace, requiring a return to the same repentance that saved them, which can only be found in the institutional church. In the institutional church. Or, let's say, the Reformed Church. Well, uh, no. Uh, the, now, now you're using the term uh, grace almost in the, the Roman Catholic concept uh, of that day, the falling from grace or uh, being in a state of grace or something along those lines. Uh, Calvin's okay. doctrine of, of sin obviously is that there are, is a need for repentance experientially in the person's life and their relationship with God. Uh, but if you're talking about one of the elect, uh, that does not separate them from the life of Christ uh, to where they have right. to be re-justified or something like that. Right, and that, and that nails it. So uh, the re-justification part of it, so that nails it. So your answer to that one is no. Okay, number four. Well, Does just before you progress with any more questions, I'm kind of intrigued as to where this is all leading, Paul. Because I'm aware we're not going to get through all your questions before before we have to, to leave you. What, what's your ultimate point? Is it that you don't believe Calvin was right? You, you think the Reformation 
was you know didn't didn't get it right i think fundamentally here's what i think and i really wanted that and the the crux of uh the crux of this is getting the answers to all seven questions and that'll help clarify but can we quickly get a yes or no answer to the rest of the questions and then i can answer your question <laughs> well okay look if yeah, okay. Go go ahead then. Let's have number four. Okay. So what what were we on? He um okay, so number four, does sola fide also apply to sanctification as well as justification? Um no. Okay. Thank you. Next, number next five. Question. <laughs> yep. You want yes or no. According yeah, to okay. the reformed doctrine of mortification and vivification. Does the Christian relive their original spirit baptism throughout their lives as a result of practicing the same repentance that originally saved them? I don't understand that question. Okay, let's move on. Mm -hmm. Number six. Does total depravity, the T in TULIP, also apply to believers? No. According to the Reformers, do Christians remain totally deprived? Not in regards to ability, no. There's a, there's a new creation, so there's a fundamental uh, shift and change of spiritual life. Thank you. Number seven, can a Christian do any work pleasing to God? Only by grace. So, so, by yeah, grace, so, so yes, <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, the answer is yes, because you said Christian. That means a new creature in Christ and dwelt by the Holy okay. Spirit of God. So yes, obviously, we can. Okay, and so we can... We can park on this. We can park on this uh, uh, a little bit with what little time we have left. So, you're, what you're saying is, is that yes, a Christian can do a good work by grace. Because he's when the reformers spoke of so when the but when the reformers spoke of grace, really what they were talking about is salvation. So, what you're no, saying no, is, no, no. okay. No, no, I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of the fact that, uh, and again, when we talk about reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, and Luther all have, have had uh, differences of opinion on minor elements of mm. this, but, but they are all monergists, and uh, it is a very common error to think that the term salvation is meant to be taken synonymously with the the elements of salvation, regeneration, sanctification, adoption, uh, which are distinguished from one another scripturally and hence theologically as well. And so, no. Roughly, what percentage of the Reformers, and, I, and just roughly, just a general idea, you, you say that there's disagreement amongst them. How many of them roughly would have believed that sanctification is purely monogistic? Purely monergistic. Can someone just define what monergism okay. is? <laughs> All right, monergism is the idea that there is one force acting to accomplish something. Synergism is a cooperation of forces. Okay. And so I am a biblical monergist. I believe that God regenerates yes. by his own power without the association. He, he initiates, he delivers. He and accomplishes, it, right. It's nothing on our part. That's being exactly. Done. And what's being asked is, is what about sanctification? Mm. And, of course, the, the difference here is, is sancti- is are we talking about positional sanctification? We have been made holy through the imputed righteousness of Christ, or are we talking about the experience of being conformed to the image of Christ, or a 
uh, not a positional, but an experiential. Which is an ongoing An process. ongoing thing. That's why he, uh, Paul uses the uh, participle, those who are being saved, those who are, who are perishing, uh, the now and the not yet. So uh, they had discussions about these things. I can't give you percentages, uh, mm-hmm. but they, the problem that I'm sensing here in the questions is um, not using the terminology that they did in the way they did. And that leads to a lot of confusion. Uh, what, what, can I just get a clarification here? Because we are going to have to leave it in a moment, Paul. But, but is your fundamental problem that you think Calvin and the other reformers bungled it? They didn't really preach a... Uh, they didn't really get the Reformation right because ultimately it still, in your view, becomes something about works, you, you um, works righteousness. Is, is that what you're saying? Right. I, I, I believe that that uh, Calvin and Luther taught a false gospel. So they and weren't reformed that, enough, in your view? They, they didn't go far enough? No, I, I think they taught a type of works salvation by perpetually returning to the same gospel that saved us to keep ourselves saved. And I've got as many quotes from Luther that you would want on that. We're going to have to leave it there from, 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 from you, Paul, but thank you for calling in. This is an interesting perspective. Have you come across this before? No. James? Not, not, not in that form. Right. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who want to criticize. And, and unfortunately, because of the nature of the questions, I realize there's all sorts of differences um, uh, about the subjects being discussed as far as uh, amongst re- Reformed scholars and even uh, history of the Reformation. But it is important to recognize, if you've read the Institutes of Christian Religion by Calvin, um, that he makes very, very careful distinctions. He's a very careful thinker in differentiating in the what's what's called the ordo salutis, the the order of salvation, di- di- differentiating between sanctification and justification. And he was very clear on what the nature of justification is. Our standing before God is because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. We don't add to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything else is is the gift of grace in our lives, but it does not add to what our standing is before God. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, Paul, for being uh, our other caller. Uh, Thanks to Zach and David as well, who took part in today's program. And thank you to James for being with us for two weeks for for, for today's (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, And uh, again, aomin.org if you want to find out more about James's ministry. James, uh, really appreciate being on the show. and um, I'll keep directing folks your direction. Thank you. And uh, safe journey back to the U.S. And uh, and I'm sure we'll see you perhaps when you're next in the country. Lord willing. So do come back for the final part of today's show. After a quick break, we're going to be hearing from Larry Taunton about his unlikely friendship with the world's most notorious atheist in his new book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Larry Taunton of the Fixed Point Foundation joins me now to talk about a new book that's coming out shortly on his relationship with one of the world's best-known atheists, Christopher Hitchens. Larry, thank you for joining me today. It's great to be with you, Justin. You had this very unusual friendship with Christopher Hitchens. Do you want to tell us about when it started? Certainly. And um, let me first acknowledge to your audience, I've lost my voice crossing the Atlantic. <laughs> I think it has to do with your your uh, very cold weather for <laughs> someone like me from Alabama. But uh, yes, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens was someone that I first met at the Edinburgh International Festival mm. in uh, 2008, I believe it was. And um, I was prepared to meet this um, this fire eater, um, this uh, this man that I was sure we would brawl mm. in my hotel room. He was coming um, to meet me to discuss the specifics of a debate we were doing with John Lennox um, there. 
and um, I, we immediately hit it off. Mm. Um, I liked him. Um, he wasn't um, the man that I expected from reading his book, God is Not Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I That book is a rant. Mm. And I told Christopher, I expected him to um, uh, to match the book. <laughs> and, uh, and he didn't, at least not in private, not mm. a, away from audiences, away from the cameras, uh, away from uh, um, the uh, recordings. Um, Christopher was a very different individual. And um, that would begin an interesting relationship between us that would continue until his death. The book that you've written is, in a sense, um, an account of that friendship and the man that you met, as opposed, as you say, to the public persona that was somewhat projected. Um, it's called The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. It's a it's a little bit of a, an interesting title. Many people will do a double take at that. Um, what do you mean by the faith of Christopher Hitchens? Well, Justin, we all have faith in something. Mm. And uh, as, as uh, strange as it may sound, um, atheists also have faith. They have a faith that there is no God. Mm. They have a faith that, that their own um, worldview will ultimately be validated. And um, Christopher, Christopher uh, was a man of uh, a kind of faith, too. He recognized that atheism, to quote him, in itself is nothing. Mm. Uh, he knew that uh, it was uh, a belief in nothingness mm. and that you could no more found a life upon it than you could upon um, being a vegetarian or, or something like that. So Christopher was looking. He was a searcher, a man who was searching for um, uh, that uh, thing which might ultimately sustain uh, and give meaning to his life. Mm. Um, patriotism, for instance, came to be something that was very important to him. Oddly enough, American um, patriotism. Mm. Um, he also was a strong believer in science. But towards the end of his life, uh, Christopher began exploring the Christian faith. Mm. Christopher learned that he could use his profession uh, as a way of sort of secretly investigating <laughs> personal questions. Mm. Um, you can, for instance, in your role, mm. um, approach people of other worldviews strictly for professional reasons. Sure. But while personally really investigating questions that mm. you have, mm. uh, Christopher did this kind of thing. Uh, and in a chapter of the book that I call Undercover, uh, Christopher, after the publication of God is Not Great, how religion poisons everything. Um, he began engaging evangelicals, Southern uh, evangelicals in particular, that is to say, um, the American South. And, um, you know, he would, would make a show of, you know, this. I'm asking these questions strictly for, for <laughs> investigative reasons. Yeah. But I think Christopher was actually personally um, investigating questions he had. Um, questions about God, questions about the validity um, of the Bible, mm. questions about what it is that makes um, evangelicals tick mm. um, and their belief in, in the person of Jesus Christ. So Christopher and I took two lengthy road trips after his diagnosis with esophageal cancer. Um, and during those road trips, we studied the Gospel of John. The first road trip was 12 hours. It was from his home in D.C. to my home in Birmingham, Alabama. 
And we didn't study the Gospel of John the whole way, <laughs> three or four hours, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then a month later, um, we did it from Billings to West Yellowstone, Montana, through Yellowstone National Park. A lovely and, setting to, <clears throat> to have an extended Bible study. <laughs> yeah, and that one was a little shorter because uh, we were going through John chapter 2, but the windy roads mm. were making him very nauseated. Sure. But there will be those who'd say, oh, Christopher didn't want to do that. And, and uh, well, if he didn't, he had an odd way of showing it yeah. because he sought me out mm. and he sought out these types of um, um, opportunities. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very, very interesting. He famously said or was quoted to have said, if I appear at any point to have had some kind of deathbed conversion, please assume that uh, it really isn't what I want. It's some, you know, cancer has gone to my brain, cancer has gone to my brain, all of that. And that I have a feeling is the way some people will cast your book as saying, oh, well, it's very difficult for him to respond after the fact, you know, from 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 his grave and. And from his own words, he said he seemed to be very demonstrative about the fact that if, if he ever appeared to have any waning of his atheistic uh, perspective, then then people should discount that. In his yes, uh, it's interesting, Justin, that you should mention that because uh, the very first time I believe Christopher said that was on um, Charlie Rose, a show um, in the uh, the U.S. television show, and uh, shortly thereafter, I was talking to him on the phone, and I said. Christopher, what's up with the, if I convert, the it means the cancer has gone to my brain. And he said, um, so you saw that? And I said, I did. And he seemed a little embarrassed by it. Mm. And I said, I mean, you're a man who professes um, to be open a free to thinker. possibilities. Mm. Yes. Mm. And to being persuaded by evidence. And now you've just said that no amount of evidence will ever make <laughs> me change my mind. I also think it's fascinating that um, that Christopher wasn't saying, uh, say in the case of a Charles Darwin or Lady Hope mm. claimed some 30 years or so after his death that he had had this deathbed conversion for which there's no evidence. Mm. Christopher wasn't saying, if somebody claims I converted, yeah. don't believe him. Mm-hmm. What he said was, if I do something <laughs> that appears to be a conversion, now, that's a very yeah. interesting mm. difference. Mm. He was preparing people for the possibility that he might actually convert. <laughs> but I think it was also Christopher's way. He was very prideful of saying essentially this. If I convert, I still want to remain the hero of the atheist movement. <laughs> he wanted to have it both ways. <laughs> that's right. Well, he did. He did. So you were able to to have this insight that many people wouldn't have had of of Christopher off stage um, when the lights have gone off and so on. And overall, you think then that there was something of a softening towards the concept of religion that many people who would have read his book and thought that was his last word on the subject would be very surprised by. Yes. I mean, Christopher would, you know, give the impression on stage or perhaps even in his articles, that he hated religious people. Mm. Uh, and I don't use the word lightly. I mean, um, there are those who, who, to this day, think Christopher hated Christians, mm. believers. But even after our debate, for instance, in Montana, and we decided to debate there because Christopher had never been to Montana, and he suggested after a, an engagement to Birmingham, Alabama, he said, why don't we debate? 
And I said, well, it typically takes about six months to a year <laughs> to plan something like that. Mm. He said, well, my traveling days are coming to an end. I don't. I have maybe six more weeks left that I'll be able to do something. Yeah. And I said, Christopher, didn't you tell me that Montana was the only state of the contiguous United States you'd never been to and that you regretted it? And he said, yes. And I said, well, it just so happens there's a group in Montana that's been asking us to do something there. Why don't we debate there? Mm-hmm. So we did. Mm-hmm. And um, Christopher's, you know, breathing fire from the stage. And, <laughs> and as soon as the debate is over, he crosses the stage, shakes my hand, and he says, you are quite good tonight. Um, <laughs> are we having dinner? And for the next several hours, we were at dinner. And, and, and to be honest, I was trying to get him to his hotel room because I'd had friends who traveled thousands of miles mm. to support me in this debate. And Christopher... Um, was enjoying everyone so much mm. that I couldn't break him away from them <laughs> and get him off to his hotel room to bed so that I could go and meet with them, you know, in a more intimate mm. um, setting. Um, no, Christopher, Christopher's views changed tremendously. And, uh, and you know, I, I think I can demonstrate these things just through the things he said and did publicly. Mm. For instance... Um, part of my thesis in this book is that atheism is not what defined Christopher. If you try to unlock him with that key, you'll find it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Why not? Because, um, well, if it did, why did he support the George W. Bush administration mm. while many on the left weren't going to support him under any circumstances? Yeah. That, 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 there were many aspects of his character, actually, which were at odds with the soci- sociological preferences of most of the people he who, exactly. who, who adored him. Yeah. Exactly. And many on the left would never support anything George W. Bush did because he was a, a Christian. Well, Christopher would and did. Mm. And then there's this odd instance where he goes on Bill Maher, which is a well-known show in the, mm. uh, the U.S. Hosted by a, a well-known atheist. Hosted himself. by a well-known atheist who I think saw Christopher as a bit of a hero. Yeah. And Christopher comes on his show and you can see that Mar thinks you can. By the way, Google this. Um, yeah. Find it on YouTube, and uh, and I think he thinks we're going to be friends because yeah. we're both atheists. Yeah, and we're um, on the same side. We're on the same side. Christopher mauls him, <laughs> and he says, "I've watched your show. Um, you do what I see so many like you do. You tell, um, you go for the low hanging fruit, and you tell George Bush jokes." And I've decided this is the joke that stupid people tell. Wow. And then the audience <laughs> poos, and he gives them the middle finger and says, F you. Wow. And um, Mar goes white. <laughs> this isn't going the way I thought it would it go. It wouldn't go the way he thought it would. And then he does it again. And um, so now the way I think the left has interpreted Christopher is say, ah, he's a contrarian. Mm. He would just occasionally yeah. do things like this. He, he wanted an argument, essentially. <laughs> They're wrong. There was a consistency in this. If you're trying to make these things make sense from an atheistic point of view, Mm. it doesn't hold. But if you interpret him as a man who had decided that his patriotism was very important to him, then you begin to understand why he was willing to ally himself with evangelicals Mm. like George W. Bush and like many Southern evangelicals Mm. who he believed rightly understood the political and global landscape and knew who the real enemies were 
And this this is something that mattered to Christopher a great deal. So atheism didn't define yeah, him. Yeah. Was he an atheist? Certainly. Did it define him? Absolutely not. And in that sense, quite different to the other um, pantheon of atheists that he was often put next to in terms of the so-called four horsemen, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Dan Dennett being the other three. What will his <clears throat> his his former horse, horsemen colleagues make of your book? Um, yeah, I know three, or rather knew three of the four ho- horsemen. Um, Richard Dawkins I know rather well. Christopher, of course, I knew very well. Um, and I debated Dan Dennett on Al Jazeera last year. Nice man, by the way. Mm. First time I'd ever met him. Sam Harris I've never met. Mm. His writings would give the impression that he's an ideologue. So he'll probably hate the book. Uh, I think if they read it, mm. they'll see that I treat Christopher respectfully. I, I make no Lady Hope-like claims regarding Christopher. Okay. I am claiming um, that Christopher was seriously contemplating conversion. Did he? It's impossible for any of us to know the answer to that. Um, but uh, and his wife, Carol Blue, says that you know, that if he certainly didn't say anything to give that in, mm-hmm. indication, and I believe her. Mm. Um, there's no reason to, um, to, to seriously doubt her, except that Christopher spoke of his life as, a, as having two books, that there was the public book mm-hmm. and then the private book. And, and the, that motif is a reference to a kind of fraudulent bookkeeping. There's the, the public yes. accounts, and there's the private ones. Yeah. And Christopher refers to this in his memoir. He refers to it elsewhere um, quite a lot, that there was a public version of himself and a private version of himself. And those two books had very different theses <laughs> of things that were going on in his life. So I think if, if um, the other, the, the remaining three, four horsemen were to read this, they'll I think they'll be intrigued because um, this isn't a tell-all. It's it's not a, a making no scurrilous claims no. regarding um, Christopher. I'm telling the story of our relationship. I'll also tell you this: Michael Shermer, very well-known atheist mm-hmm. in the uh, the U.S., uh, Michael has read the book and gave it a beautiful endorsement. Wow! Um, obviously, Michael would disagree that mm. I, as a Christian. Um, you know, thought that it was important that Christopher mm. should mm. hear about the saving power of Jesus Christ. But I think um, I think Michael found the book to be rather moving um, as it relates to that relationship. And um, as for uh, as for Richard and and Dan, uh, if they read it, I, I think they'll find that I, tr- I treat him very respectfully. Well, it's been really fascinating to hear the story behind the story. He was very open, wasn't he, to hearing people. He would. He didn't want to just surround himself with like-minded people. No, um, no, he didn't. Kind of an interesting little anecdote. We're at a book signing, mm. and um, Christopher is. There's a line, and he's signing books, handing them back. And a uh, a young man says to Christopher, "Why would you go on a road trip with him through the Shenandoah Valley?" Mm. And Christopher said, "Have you seen the Shenandoah Valley this time of year? <laughs> it's beautiful." And the man said, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, why would you go on a road trip with him? And he gestured at me, meaning with a Christian. With a Christian. And Christopher pushed his book back to him, and he said, because he is my friend, and you, sir, are an idiot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is classic, Christopher. (laughs) It was was classic, Christopher. 
But Christopher observed a kind of integrity and loyalty to the friendship, and I, I liken it to the film 310 to Yuma, mm. because what began as sort of my mission, if you know that film at all, um, you know, you, you have uh, a, a villain who is being taken to this, this train where mm. he will go to Yuma and stand trial, and uh, this other man who's, whose job it is to get him there. Mm. And um, to begin with, it was my mission to get Christopher on that train, so to speak. But somewhere along the way, it started to feel less like my mission than our mission. Right. Because Christopher showed a kind of dedication to the mission that he was determined to at least let me try mm. to convert him. And along the way, he gunned down more than just a few of those on his own side. Um, after our debate, for instance... Um, in Montana, the day after we're driving through, just together, he insisted no one else ride with us. Mm. It could only be the two of us. Okay. And so we're riding through Yellowstone National Park. And I said, you know, Christopher, last night we were debating, and I've, I've wondered at your formal training in debate. And he started telling me about the Oxford Union and so mm. forth. And, and uh, I said, so how do you prepare for a debate? Well, he says, well, I have three rules. Know the uh, the person you're debating, know the position he holds, and why he holds it, and then thirdly, decide whether or not you want to destroy the argument or the man. <laughs> and I kind of swallowed hard on that, and I said, um, "Well, why didn't you try to destroy me last night?" And he said, "Because you believe it. <laughs> you believe it." And then he said, um, "Do you know Al Sharpton?" And I said, "Well, not personally, but certainly I know who he is." He said, total huckster, total huckster. <laughs> he said, I'm convinced he's an atheist. And I said, really? He says, oh, yes. He says, um, I debated him in New York, and uh, it seems quite clear to me that he doesn't believe in a God at all, certainly doesn't believe in any holy texts. And uh, and it's a guy like that. You ask me who I seek to destroy in the debate, there's a good start. Mm, wow. So um, Christopher threw out our debate. It was playful. And in the book, I lay out part of the transcript of that debate, which if you watch it, you will miss what's happening mm. because a lot of it was inside um, uh, jokes yeah. and references. Yeah. But I tell this story, which Christopher loved, and the cameras capture him <laughs> smiling and enjoying it. But I tell this little story. We're driving through the Shenandoah Valley, and I tell the audience, I don't think... Christopher will mind me telling this story. We stop at a gas station in Johnson City, Tennessee, and um, Christopher's standing at the counter, counter, and he's looking at all these these products for sale, and you know, five hour energy drinks and so on. And he sees a product there called No Tar, and he asks the woman behind the counter, who has no idea who we are, <laughs> "What is this?" And she says in a thick Southern accent, "She says, well." That's uh, that's no tar. You put that on the end of your cigarette, and you don't get any nicotine, and you don't get any tar. And um, Christopher says, oh, I wish I'd known. And, uh, because, <laughs> of course, he was dying of cancer at the time. And both of us just roared. And she looked at us like we were completely nuts. And then I said to the audience, you know, they, they, the audience loved this. Christopher did, too. But then I turned to him and feeling very serious I said um, 
I fear my friend will tumble into eternity and say, oh, I wish I'd known. Hmm. And uh, I think Christopher was very appreciative of the fact that I, I, I cared about him enough to pursue yes. him. And not because I needed his conversion to right. feel good about right. my own faith or to have him as a trophy. It's because I'd come to know him. I'll be honest, Justin, when I first met Christopher, or rather was preparing to meet him, I saw him as a as the opposition to be taken down. Yeah. Um, my goal was to, to destroy the arguments or sideline the man. Mm. I didn't expect any kind of conversion, certainly not an onstage conversion, but I wanted to derail yeah. um, and diffuse the arguments that he was putting forth which were historically naive. Mm. I would say that's true of all mm. the new atheists. Mm. The new atheists, now that they're seeking new membership, need to add a historian okay. um, <laughs> because they're sorely lacking in their understanding of history. Um, but uh, I, I, Christopher, at least, had a, had a fairly good grasp um, of history, and he, uh, he, he knew that atheism itself could not sustain a society. Yeah been delightful to hear your anecdotes and to hear you reminisce on the friendship you had with christopher hitchens very much looking forward to reading the book as well and thank you very much for coming in to tell us about it larry delight to be with you 